Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 16. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. It is a beautiful spring day. I'm loving the weather now. Uh, it's a tad bit humid in Georgia, but we talk about the weather all the time. So can you pick us another topic to get started with? Uh, we talk about bees all the time, too. Uh, uh, there, to- we do have a listener who calls this the accidental bee podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe, that was unfair. I wasn't ready to talk about anything, actually. Okay, let's think real quick. Let's brainstorm. Uh, front material. Uh, engaging interest stories. Um, Tell us about your bike ride. Well, it wasn't very exciting. Well, I mean, it made you feel good. It did make me feel good. How many miles did you ride? Well, I'll go for 30 minutes. Oh, okay. So it's just as far as I can go in 30 minutes. I can start at the Silver Comet Trail in Hiram and get all the way to the uh, Highway 61 underpass. That's about the uh, length that I like to take a walk, but I haven't been using a bike on the Comet Trail. I don't have it. Well, I have a bike, but I don't have a way to carry it on my small sedan. I understood. The kids, though, I've taken the kids out there to ride their bikes. They both learned how to ride a bike this year. They've had bikes before, but they just didn't have the gumption to get on there without the training wheels and make a breakthrough. Oh man. And I kept them telling them guys you are on the verge of that breakthrough. You got to give it a real go. I was riding my bike like crazy by the time I was seven years old. Oh man. I, I tore up my town on my bicycle. As long as I was home by dinner time, mom never asked where I was. I was all over the place. Friends houses down at the beach, rode a bike to the next town several times for fun of it. Yeah. Yeah, so I, by the time I was 14, I was grabbing my bike and riding to work at Chick-fil-A, which was about a two-hour walk, maybe a 30-minute bike ride. Yeah, my uh, first summer job, I was washing dishes this is the summer after ninth grade. I washed dishes all summer long, and in the middle of summer, I bought myself a nice 10-speed, and I had that bicycle up until just a couple of years ago. I put thousands upon thousands of miles on it. Whoa, I didn't realize you were such an avid bike rider. Is that your go-to exercise of choice, or do you also swim? No, it was really just transportation. Okay. I mean, all all over town, back and forth to work. Um, at Georgia Tech, I rode it all over campus constantly. Well, nowadays, you do use it, though, for exercise. Yeah, different bike. Different bike. Tell us about the bike. No, it's just, there's no, re- there's no reason to. It's a- <laughs> You're shutting down, you keep shutting down the conversation. <laughs> well, it's because it's not an interesting conversation. I, I got a piece of garbage secondhand bike that somebody gave me that, I mean, you're, you know, listeners like, oh, what kind of bike do you have? You know, how is it $3,000 bike? And this and this. No, man, it's a piece of junk. Well, I mean, I don't think that I would ever even spend a whole lot of money on a bike, but I still like to know what my bike's features are thing about bike riding for me is I honestly don't understand the gears. One side says it goes up to four. The other one says it goes up to 20. And I don't know what that means. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's the, the front gear is where your feet are. There are fewer sprockets. Okay. What does that mean? Well, when you, it, if you have it on the smallest one, you have to pedal more times with your feet for the wheel to go around once. Okay. If you have it on the biggest ones, you have to pedal fewer times with your feet for the wheel to go around once. Which is easier? The smallest one. So smallest one would be like gear one and then it goes up from there. Yeah. Do you want to kind of keep them coordinated somehow? 
Oh, no, no, not at all, not at all. The back sprocket is the opposite. The smallest oh. one will make the wheel turn around faster. The biggest one, the wheel will turn slower. It's still, it's still in sequential order. The, the smallest number is the slowest speed. Oh, weird. In fact, if you look down, you'll notice that the smallest sprocket on the front is closest to the bike, and the biggest one is fur- furthest away, and it's the opposite on the back wheel. Okay, so so in theory, if I want it to be easier, I want... Man, I'm all confused now. Why did they have to make them backwards from each other? Okay, so... You want yeah. the chain as close to the bike as possible on the front and the back. That would be gear one. The little teeny sprocket on the front and the big sprocket on the back. Okay, interesting. Huh, you learn something new every day. It's not like you put on the small one on the front, and if you go to the back, it's not gear one, two, three, four, five... And then move the front one a little bit higher, and then a six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's not like that at all. I just leave mine on the on the front on the biggest sprocket, and I only use the back one. It's good enough. I don't need I don't need ninety gears. No, no. I need like three. I use the highest gear for going fast, one or two down for if I'm tired or if there's a slight incline, and then one a little bit less than that if I'm in the parking lot or if I'm approaching a road crossing and I don't want to be going ninety miles an hour. Okay. I guess if I had hills, I would want some of the smaller gears, but um, the Silver Comet Trail is an old railroad bed. There's hardly any hills. Right. Yeah, it's really, really comfortable. It's a nice wooded area and great terrain, a great path, just because it used to be part of railroad tracks that they replaced with the yeah. the bike trail. But, it's great. But it's not flat. No. I didn't know that when I was jogging on it, but when you get on a bicycle, you'll notice that there's a grade. <laughs> Why am I huffing and puffing? Oh, because I'm going uphill. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> There's this one particular spot where you're about a mile or two into the walk. If you're walking from where we like to park and take a walk. And uh, if I, if I make good time and I'm by myself, I could easily walk five, six miles without really thinking about it. But there's this one spot where it usually midday is when it seems like it's always midday when I make it out there. So the sun is beating down on you and the, and there's a clearing and it's going downhill into a tunnel. And then out from the, the other side of the tunnel, it goes up again. I, I, I kind of dread going downhill and then coming back uphill in the clearing. It's so hot. It's so sticky. There's a tunnel? Yeah. Where do you go? It's not very long. For the listener, the Silver, the Silver Comet Trail goes from Atlanta westward for a long way. So I don't know where Joe's going versus where I'm going. This is in Hiram. Well, I started the caboose. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you go, do you go toward Powder Springs? Yes. Ah, I go the other way because there's less tr- there's less uh, road crossings. Oh yeah, but the other way there's like the sewer plant, and you can smell it. It's so gross. Yeah, the stink. They call it the stinky mile. It's a stinky mile, all right. Yeah, but it depends on which way the wind's blowing. Oh, it was so gross. Like, if, and if you're taking a walk, and I very rarely smell it, you're, you're gonna smell it for a long mile. Well, I I just rode on it today. I smelled nothing. That's amazing. Good for yeah, you. So, hmm. all right. Well, then you wanted to talk more about ancestry. And family trees, family ties. And, and some of the mathematics and some of the really quirky, interesting things that surprise people when we start talking about family trees and our heritage. Curious. It's not what most people think. So what, are you, what is your premise? What do you think most people think? Well, actually, I don't think most people think about it at all. Like how many grandparents do you have? Four. No, wait. Do I? Yeah, four. Four. Yeah, yeah, yeah four. Yeah. How many, how many great-grandparents? Great uh, become eight, 
Yes, and then 16 and 32, right? Yeah. But you probably have some loops in your family tree that you don't know about. Probably. Yeah, especially back in the old country. You know, pick, pick, pick wherever you're from. Your ancestors lived in a little town at one point in time, and for generations they married each other. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it. But that'd go back a few hundred years before, yeah, the, before the Darnells made it to the United States. Makes total sense. Well, even a lot of people, when they arrived in the United States, there's a lot of little teeny towns, especially Appalachian towns, where just generations of people intermarrying. True, true. I remember even we were looking at a family photo of my great-great-grandfather, Cyan Arrington Darnell, from Talking Rock, Georgia, just earlier today. My dad shared the picture with us. Cool. He passed away on... No, no, he was born July... 26th, 1826, which was the same month that Thomas Jefferson passed away on July 4th. Wow. So he lived in, you know, to, to the best of our knowledge. He and John did, Adams too then. Yes. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams died in the same day. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, go ahead. So Cyan Arrington passed away. Uh, well, I mean, I, it's, it doesn't matter when he passed away. But the point is, is that where he lived there in Talking Rock was a really small town outside of another really small town in a heavily wooded North Georgia territory. So I just don't understand when I read about my ancestor and it says that he was a merchant and he was an architect because I look at what's there today and there's hardly <laughs> anything, but the guy was wealthy and he raised a big an family. Architect, he built log cabins. <laughs> right. But what year did you say this was? 18. He was born in 1826. That's before the Trail of Tears. Yeah. That's the Andrew Jackson's um, Indian Expulsion Act or whatever it's called, the Indian Removal Act. Uh, when was that? 1831, I think. See, where we live right now, west of Atlanta, this was Cherokee country 30 years before the Civil War. That's a weird perspective. Yeah. But it was only a couple of decades before the Civil War where this was not white man territory. This was Indian territory. Of course. And then Andy, Andy Jackson kicked him out because they discovered gold in West Georgia. Whoops. Anyway. Cyan actually was someone who became rather wealthy. Or actually, it wasn't him. I think it was his dad, John, made a lot of money off of a gold rush. So Talking Rock must be up up, up uh, North Georgia? Yeah, close to... It was actually like a small town outside of Jasper. Jasper is known for apple country. So a lot of yeah, apples today. up there. Oh, man... Oh, I love going up there and going to the apple farms. It is a wonderful time of year to go up there in the fall. October, oh, so many good apples. <laughs> I just Googled Talking Rock, and what came up was Biggins Barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised at all. There, you blink and you'll miss it. My dad sort of accidentally created the town's biggest attraction when he was a teenager along with his cousin. Yeah, Everybody in town would reference this like, small town monument as the starting point for getting directions to go anywhere around. What was it? Like, Hey, so you remember the man in the tree, start at the man in the tree. And then you go this way, go West <laughs> down this route. So what happened was there was one day, my dad as a teenager, he lived with his grandparents on the farm and they had beef cattle and, and it was across the street from where Cyan also lived and where he had built his house. So the man born in 1826 lived across the street from his son uh, my great grandfather. And one day there was a uh, pickup truck driving past and he lost his brakes and he ran into a great big oak tree out by the street and it made a huge gash 
uh, and all this nasty sap was spilling out and going everywhere and they thought the tree was going to die. So it's attracting all these bugs and it just looked really gross and it faced the, the street right there in the front of their pretty country home. So dad's grandfather, Arnton, Cyan's son, he said, well, uh, can we get some concrete out here, guys, and fill in the hole maybe to cover up the nasty gash and cover up the sap and, you know, steer the bugs away? So my dad, he's like 16, and, he, and his cousin, they get some concrete, they start mixing it together, and they say, you know what would be great is if we actually fashioned this into a face. <laughs> they flawlessly constructed this friendly man looking face big you know just like inviting cheerful eyes his nose and a nice warm smile you know with his lips closed and it set perfectly like three three and a half feet tall and maybe just a, a third of the circumference of the tree trunk and filled up the gap and everybody said, wow, that looks so good. That looks amazing. It looks like y'all, y'all knew exactly what you were doing. I don't know how they did it, but they fashioned the concrete face. That's funny. And it doesn't look like it was done by amateurs. So they, gave, they painted it, his face kind of an off-white and then gave him like green eyes. And then it was in the town papers and it was known as the man in the tree. That's funny. And what happened was is the, as the tree grew, it didn't die and the tree actually grew around the, the edge of the cement. Cool. So it created this perfect bark covered frame enclosing the face. And it lasted for oh, a long time. I was probably about 18 when one day the face just fell into the hollow of the inside of the tree because it eventually did rot away. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So the tree, I think the tree may be gone now, but that was only in the last 15 years. Amazing story. I love stories like that. I love anecdotes of family history. And that's one of those ones where you need to write it down for your, you know, gr- your great grandchildren. Oh, yeah. Just as a, as a really cool thing, because we forget and families, they, they lose track and, you know, cousins walk away and they take the family records with them and you never hear of them again. And you don't have any records of your family because, you know, your older cousin got them. This happens all the time. It is actually really hard to get Darnell family history going back before my great-grandfather. Well, it's hard for anyone to get family history back that far. And we know they came from North Carolina, but we would assume that there's a whole lot more branches of the family with interesting things in it, but we just don't know much of any of it. Yeah. Like my uh, great-grandfather was a longshoreman on the docks of the Brooklyn Naval Yard. In 1942, he was part of the crew that was overhauling the... um, uh, one of the most beautiful cruise ships ever made, the SS Normandy, and it caught fire. And he was on board the ship when it caught fire. Eventually, the New York the fire boats, they, they poured so much water on top of the ship that they rolled it to the side, and it was actually lying on its side in the harbor. They rolled a cruise ship. Oh, wow. And when the reason for that is that the American fire hoses didn't fit on the French fire port on the ship, so they couldn't turn on the, the fire suppression system inside the ship. Okay, yeah. So my great-grandfather was actually written up in the newspaper. Now, I think it helps that his son w- worked at this newspaper, one of the big newspapers in New York, my grandfather. But he was written up as the hero of the docks because he ran in and out of that ship grabbing burning men and hauling them out and saving their lives. Awesome. 
Wow. But in the meantime, tar dripped all over his head and his back and burned him so badly he never worked as a longshoreman again. Mm. He en- he ended his days as a New York City cab driver. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tough old bird. But again, if my dad hadn't told me that story, I would never know it. No. The stories that we have don't go very far back. That's where gene- genealogy and genetics come in. It's sort of the best records we can get, but like you were saying, there's a lot of the smaller family trees than we even think. So if something happens to that family tree in the past, I I can see how it'd be difficult to have a good record of anything that would be relevant or useful. But just thinking about the possibility of how undiverse the family tree would be from town to town, from century to century. Yeah. It's really small. It's kind of every now and then, if I want to get into a angsty existential crisis, I just think about how many generations have come along that have got to arrive at me, how all the steps along the way, how many unlikely events it would take to actually arrive at me. (laughs) Because one of the most unusual events would be that my mom and dad met each other at college in Virginia while dad was from Georgia and she was from North Carolina and she was at the end of her college period and dad was at the beginning of his. Oh, really? Did your mom, did your mom rob the cradle? <laughs> not, not quite. He, he was just a few years behind going into college. Okay. Okay. Not just making a joke there. <laughs> when we look at family trees historically, they're actually sometimes very shocking. Like take someone like Charles Darwin. He married his first cousin. So he and his wife had the same grandfather, Josiah Wedgwood from the Wedgwood pottery family. Oh, you know, all the ladies know what Wedgwood pottery is, very expensive stuff. But, you know, so the Darwin family came from money and he married his cousin, but she had a couple of brothers and a couple of sisters and each one of them also married a first cousin. Yuck. Yeah. (laughs) No joke. That happened all the time though. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of people did that is because it kept property in the family. So literally two brothers or two sisters or brother and a sister, they sit down and say, hey, your son marries my daughter. And then the property stays in the family. And they'd make that deal before the kids even grew up. And I think that's probably true in most of human history. Most people throughout all time have married somebody closer related, someone who grew up less than five miles away from where they grew up. How far back would you have to go before you find laws the earliest laws that say you cannot marry somebody closely related. Well, the earliest one I'm aware of is from Exodus, maybe Leviticus or Deuteronomy, but you know, the Moses time frame, where God says, don't marry your cousin or your sister. That's the, the closest one I'm aware of. But before that, in biblical history, I mean, all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve would have had to marry each other, and all the grandchildren of Noah would have had to marry each other. It's actually a really interesting anecdote that I wrote up in a um, an article on creation.com, inbreeding and the origin of races, I called it. And all I did was I drew a family tree. And what I did was I drew a family tree of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Joseph and Benjamin and Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Levi, all those guys, all 12, all 12 brothers. And I connected them to their parents, their grandparents and their great grandparents and their great, great grandfather, Terah. Terah was the father of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's wife. I didn't realize that. They had this, I mean, I guess I do, but I don't think about it that way until the context says that he, yeah, they, she was his half sister. So Yeah, same father, different mothers. Well, their son Isaac 
is genetically equivalent to their brother. Hmm. He's as far removed from Terra as Abraham and Sarah were because he got a double dose of Terra through both of his parents. Weird. That is weird. But then he goes and marries Rebecca, and Rebecca is descended from Abraham and Sarah's two brothers. Their brother Haran had a daughter who married their brother Nahor. So this guy married his niece. They have a man named Bethuel, and his daughter is Rebecca. This is really yucky. And then Rebecca's brother Laban, he's the father of Rachel and Leah, who's Rebecca's son's wives. You know that old country song, I Am My Own Grandpa? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, the, in the historical record of, of the nations of Israel, there's an incredible amount of inbreeding. And there's so much inbreeding that, you know how you have 50% of each of your parents' DNA, right? You're half mom and half dad? Yeah, easily. Well, that means, well, it, that, that's genetically. You are half of each of your parents. Each of your parents give you half of their genome. Right. Well, that means you're 25% of your grandparents, 12.5% of your great-grandparents, 6% of your great-great-grandparents, and about 3% of your great-great-great-grandparents. These 12 brothers should have been about 3% of Terra, but because they're descended from all four of Terra's known children in multiple different ways, each of those lines adds up. They're actually not 3%, but 20% identical to Terra. Mm, that is pretty high, yeah. And about because of the laws of genetics, about half of that, all 12 brothers are carrying identical copies. So if there was a, a, a trait that affected their height or their weight or the shape of the nose or the curliness of the hair or their skin color or eye color, there's a good chance that all 12 brothers have two copies of that exact identical trait. So you could literally walking down the street of some ancient village and say, oh, there's an Israelite and pick him out of a crowd because he would have looked different than anyone else. But that inbreeding thing is happening in every little village across the ancient world. And people are getting distinct because their family trees are really small. Hmm. So that's because of little mutations, copying mistakes, a little loss of information that a particular kind of nose and a size of ears and a particular skin pigment and the, the curliness in the hair all starts to look alike for all of the descendants. In small families, it is true that you'll lose a lot of genetic stuff. You don't have a lot of genetic diversity if you have a small family tree. But it's also true that the traits that are there are found in most all the people. So inbreeding produces a bunch of things that look the same. It works like that. I hate to compare humans to animals. But, you know, take any breed of domestic dog. The reason they breed true, you know, Pikachus breed Pikachus. Great Danes breed Great Danes. Always. The reason that's true is because they've lost all the other information there. There are no genes for Great Janes in, you know, a small dog breed. Those genes aren't there. But the genes that are there are found in all of the members of that breed, which is why they all look the same. But we've made these dog breeds in less than 100 years. Hmm. That is incredible. Most dog breeds aren't that old. When I think about just dog breeds alone, it's hard to imagine that they came from domestic plus wild animal, you know, wolf-like dogs and the like. Because when you look at the, the wild ones, they, we've got coyotes and we've got wild dogs and wolves, and none of them look remotely like most all of the, the professional breeds these days. 
This is true. They're so There's, different. There are some that are more wolf-like than others, but okay. But those are the few. So red wolves, gray wolves, coyotes, and African jackals. They can all interbreed. Guess which one of those domestic dogs are closest to? Oh. Um, African jackals, red wolves, gray wolves, or coyotes? The answer is gray wolves. See, I was leaning that way just because I know that we've got the gray wolves in the North American continent. Y- yes, but, but they didn't come from North American gray wolves. Oh. They came from Eurasian wolves. And literally, a chihuahua is a gray wolf. A dachshund <laughs> is a gray wolf. Descendant. <laughs> a bulldog is a gray wolf. Now, genetically, they are gray wolves. It is absolutely 100% clear. But the reason they look distinct is because of inbreeding. And so that's my biggest explanation of where human races came from. The reason that people look different is that they haven't freely mixed throughout human history because of geography. When people are close to each other, they mix because that's the way people are. But when they're far apart, they can't. And that inbreeding within your little community makes you look different over just a few generations compared to people in a different community. It would be so fascinating to see my ancestors from 2000 years ago, the way that they would look uniquely, I would imagine largely different, begin to see the similarities only from a few hundred years ago. Actually, or am I mistaken? Would, would I see more similarity even that far back? Uh, yeah, but what's going to be surprising is you have to leave Europe to do it. Hmm. The ancestors of modern Europeans didn't arrive in Europe until the Bronze Age. That's the period of the judges in the Bible. Before that, they were on the grasslands north of the Caspian and Black Seas. And then they invaded. And there was a gigantic archaeological and genetic change in Europe because of that. We talked about that several episodes ago. Yeah. You know, all the peoples of the world episode. Genetically, they would look very much like Europeans. But the thing is, there was already people in Europe. And when this new group of people came in, they didn't kill off everybody in Europe. No, they had children with them. And the result is a mixture. Just looking at Europe, we were a mixture of Neanderthal. And in the earliest you know, so-called modern human hunter-gatherers, and then the farmers that moved up from Turkey, and then the warlike plains people who swept in from the east. And that amalgamation of those different traits, those different genetic strains, produces what we call a European. Hmm. But some of those people groups are more different from each other than modern Europeans today are different than Chinese people. Wow. So the whole question of what's a race is thrown up in the air. We should, we should do an entire episode on that. That would be kind of cool. Well, then do you want to just comment on that in passing? What are you saying? What is a race in terms of like, do races last versus like ebb and flow and change and disappear? Yeah, races are not static. And they're not evolutionarily different from other other races. And we only can look at a person and give them a race if we're only judging them very superficially. On the rest of the genome, nothing works. There's nothing you can say, oh, this is African, this is European, this is Asian. It's completely mixed together. Even when you look at something like Y chromosomes, there are men from Cameroon that have my Y chromosome. My Y chromosome comes from Ireland. I could be more differently related to another Irish person wow. than men from Central Africa. They're my closest ancestors. Wow. And we can make that argument on just about all places in the genome. So the whole, you know, the whole idea that there are races fails when we consider genetics. It simply doesn't work. One of the coolest things about modern ancestry testing services like ancestry.com and 23me.com and myheritage.com 
is that they have told us clearly there's no such thing as race. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. I would have. Well, you mean that they don't specify race or what exactly? Because I'm, I imagine I have seen examples where they do identify races, right? Well, yeah, they can, they can tell you where your ancestors lived, but it's only statistical. It's like more people in Africa have this trait. Therefore, you're probably from Africa. But it doesn't mean that no people in Europe have that trait. It's just not common. And what they do is they look for groups of letters. So if like, you know, 90% of Africans have this and 85% of Africans have this. Well, if you have both of those, the probability of you coming from Africa or not coming from Africa is, you know, 0.95 times 0.85. And you string all those things together and your probability gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter to, to they say, we have very high confidence that this section of your genome comes from Iceland or Southern China or, you know, Native America but it's only statistical. Those letters are found everywhere. It's just the groups of letters are found in one place more often than another. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense then. So what they're showing us is that people are a lot more interconnected, interrelated than we thought. And one of the big surprises is there's a lot of people who thought that they were European and they've got big chunks of African ancestry and they didn't know it. Part of this is a relict of the slave trade, which is horrible and sickening. But after the Civil War was over, there were a lot of light-skinned slaves. And they said, you know what? I look white. I'm going to move to a city. And they disappeared into white society. And today, we have a lot of people descended from them who didn't know it. Wow. I watched a video probably a year or two ago. There's a you know, very you know, beautiful woman, just very well-dressed, you know, lovely person, nice personality. And she has this YouTube show. Well, she happens to be African-American. And she's like, oh, everybody, I got my results from you know, African ancestry today. And I'm going to, this is a big reveal. She's got the envelope and she opens it up and she starts reading this letter and her face falls and she starts crying. And she says, it says 100% European. And she says, I can't, I can't. And she turns off the, turns off the video. Wait, she's African-American. Well, this testing company only looks at mitochondria, not the rest of the genome. And her mitochondria was European, which is rare. There are a lot of European Y chromosomes in African-American population because, you know, white slave owners and black slaves and, you know, Y chromosomes tend to go from Europe to Africa, if that makes sense. Okay. But very, very, very rarely would a, a European woman have children with an African-American man. That's almost unheard of. Oh, yeah. But this woman comes back on and she does the second half of her thing. She goes, okay, I'm, I'm back, y'all. And uh, I had to talk to my mom and her mom's grandmother was white and she didn't know it. Wow. So her mom's grandmother had married a black man. Wow. And so all these very surprising little things that we're seeing uh, pop up in, in all these ancestry things. But it's something else that's just crazy. It's the mathematics of it all. I mean, I asked you a little while ago, how many parents do you have? Two, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents. Well, wait a second. That's an exponential increase. Yeah. And if you assume that your generation time is about 30 years, which is true. My 10 generations ago for me was uh, uh, William Brewster, who was on the Mayflower with his wife and his son. So my 10th generation ancestor was 300 years ago and they're on the Mayflower. So it's about 30 years per generation. Yeah, wow. That's kind of cool. Well, if you go back 
10 generations, you have 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 120, 250, 500. You have 1,024 ancestors in your, fa- in your family tree. That, you know, that's a lot. Yeah, and almost nobody knows all of their 10th generation grandparents just because it's too hard to find all the documentation. Maybe if you're royalty, you might know it, but probably not even then. Oh, of course not. Yeah. If you go back 20 generations ago, this is only 1400 AD. You have a million ancestors, or shall we say there are a million slots in your family tree. It's almost certain you don't have that many because anytime two cousins get married or two second cousins get married, half the family tree disappears. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you go back only 30 generations ago, 1100 AD, you have a billion ancestors in your family tree. (laughs) Okay. I know with the Black Plague and other calamities and world devastation and war that... There aren't a billion people in the world. No, that can't happen. If there aren't a billion people in the world, you can't have that many ancestors. (laughs) But if you go back... 40 generations ago, 800 AD, you have a trillion ancestors in your family tree. It just can't be. You only have 6 billion letters of DNA. (laughs) Yeah, the math is upside down. So almost all of your ancestors contributed no DNA to you. It's mathematically impossible. Wow. Wow. Yeah, a lot of people say, you know, I'm, I'm descended from someone famous, you know, Charlemagne or Henry VIII or whatever. And I'd say, yeah, that's fine. You didn't get near their DNA. Huh? Wow. So the probability of you getting DNA from that person is nil. Wow. Now, if you did get DNA, okay, fine. But so did a billion other people. <laughs> then you're not unique. <laughs> right. Because once you go far enough back, anyone who has ancestors, any, sorry, anyone who has descendants in the modern world is the descendants of everyone in the modern world. Huh. You go back only a couple of cent- only a couple of centuries ago, and there is someone alive in Europe who's the ancestor of all Europeans, maybe 500 years ago. Wow, cool. And it, it might not be a king; it might be a butler or a maid or a you know a, a milk milk deliverer. Who knows? It could be anybody, some random person. All right, let's talk about biology. During sexual reproduction, the chromosomes are recombined. So when when a person has a child, they take the DNA inside them, and it's which is half their mother and half their father, and the DNA gets scrambled together, and then it gets cut in half, and that child gets half of their parents' genome, but that parents' genome is half grandma and half grandpa. That's why you're 50% mom, but 25% of her parents. Right. Okay. Well, because of the way recombination works, you get big chunks of grandma or grandpa. That makes sense because it's somewhat randomized. Yeah, it's randomized, but it's randomized in big chunks. So if you've got a big, like let's say just chromosome number one, look at the chromosome number one you inherited from your mother. Well, a recombination almost certainly happened on chromosome one. So part of chromosome one is from grandma and part of chromosome one is from grandpa. But the chromosome one you inherited from your father part of that chromosome is from his mother and part of it's from his father. So it's just like a patchwork, this quilt of ancestry. And we inherit big blocks of DNA. The problem is that those blocks get chopped into smaller and smaller pieces every generation. And once they're smaller than the average size of the blocks that you inherit, you have a 50-50 chance of getting that piece of great-great-grandpa or not. 
And it doesn't take very many generations before a person actually has no genetic descendants. Wow. So here people think about their own legacies and they want to picture that their children's 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 children will have some things in common with them and remember their legacy. And it's just not happening. The way it works out is you absolutely have 50%, you know, pretty close to that of each parent and really close to 25% of each grandparent. But by the time you get maybe five generations back, I mean, I know the names of all of my fifth generation ancestors. They lived in the middle of the 1800s. Probably one of those people I didn't get any DNA from. Wow. You go back 10 generations and nearly 90% of the people in your family tree are not your ancestors. That is so weird. That you, you might have inherited the estate from these people. You know, if, if it's passed down from the oldest to the oldest to the oldest, you might have, you know, lived on some beautiful castle or something like that. But you know what? Mm-hmm. You might have gotten the, the family fortune from this person, but you might not have any of their DNA. Wow. <laughs> By the time you hit 15, 20 generations, more than 99% of the people in your family tree, it doesn't matter if they were there or not because you don't have their DNA. Mm. In the end, we have about a thousand ancestors only. And those people only back a few hundred years at the most. That's right. But if you go back a few thousand years, you still only have about a thousand ancestors. In fact, all of the people in the world can be explained with about a thousand ancestors. You mean as in for each individual or all the billions of people in the world today can be explained with about a thousand ancestors? Both. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That is mind bending. If I have only a thousand genetic ancestors and I'm very closely related to Europeans, that means just a few generations before my thousand ancestors is a thousand ancestors for, for everyone in Europe. Just a few generations before that's the thousand ancestors for everybody in the world. Now, how many generations ago? It all depends upon mathematical modeling. We actually don't know because we don't know how many people related, you know, married their cousin versus, you know, someone distant related. We don't know the generation time. We don't know, uh, birth rates and survivability statistics for ancient people. There's, we just simply don't know. But we do know that mathematically, the whole world population collapses down into one family not that long ago. Wow. In fact, that ancestor probably lived about the time of Christ, mathematically. It could be earlier than that. It could be later than that, depending upon you know people staying apart from one another. But people have been pretty free with their DNA for all of human history. I mean, when they meet, there are babies. Right. That's just what happens. Some scientists were studying uh, something called um, polydactyly. That's when a person's born with extra fingers and extra toes. There's a famous case of it in the Bible. That is a peculiar condition. Yeah. One of the (laughs) Philistines that was killed by one of David's men when David was an old man in the Bible, he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. He had polydactyly. Well, look around the world today. Scientists are like, who's got the most polydactyly oh it's the amish community why is that well because of inbreeding because they started from a very small group of people now their community has been growing like crazy over the last couple centuries but it did not start from a large population and with that much inbreeding this recessive trait became very common and so there you know some sometimes it's a it's a strange trait because sometimes you have a fully functional extra finger sometimes you have a y-shaped pinky Sometimes you have a fat end of a pinky. And sometimes you can just see like a split in a fingernail. Oh, weird. So it's an it's a incomplete penetrance. Just because you carry that trait doesn't mean you can see it. 
It depends on all these other factors, but sometimes you have just a full extra finger. And so they're studying this trait. They said next, okay, now who else in the world has high rates of polydactyly? I said, oh, Australian Aboriginals living in Northwest Australia. And so they go there and they start doing some genetic work. And they said, hey, wait a second. The same exact letter change and the same exact gene is found in the Australian Aborigines. Wow. So are they related? Are they distantly related or are they well, the descendants of those? No, that's the question, isn't it? Because there's no direct link. It's not like, you know, German people are going to Australia thousands of years ago. No. Yeah. The problem, see, the thing is, there's a lot of different ways to create polydactyly. You just got to nuke that one gene in any number of different ways. Oh, okay. That's what's more likely happened. And if you're going to change a letter like an A into a G, well, that A could also turn into a C or a T. So the probability of finding the same exact letter change in two different people that happened independently is almost zero. And what they realized was that a Dutch ship had run aground in Northwest Australia a couple hundred years ago. No way. And apparently one of the sailors survived. (laughs) And therefore, this Aboriginal tribe has a common ancestor with the Amish. That is incredible. So again, what's a race? That question comes up. And again, how many ancestors do you have? That comes up. Amazing. Crazy. Cool. It is crazy. It makes the world really do feel small after all. You know, that Yeah. That song is so true. It feels like a big world, but also a small world. Yeah, I like that. One of the best studied populations in the world is Iceland. For some strange reason, the Icelanders decided they were going to get into genetics whole hog. And they started a, a Icelandic genetics company that has fully sequenced thousands of Icelander genomes. And they'd done a 23andMe style, ancestry style testing on tens of thousands of Icelanders. And then they went and cataloged the genealogy of most everyone in Iceland because they converted to Christianity in the year 1000. And they never got destroyed by World War I or World War II. And they were the invaders, not someone who got invaded. And so their churches have been around all this time. And most Icelanders have a record of their family tree going all the way back to the founding of Iceland. Hmm. And what they determined, though, was that a minority of people a couple hundred years ago are the ancestors of everyone in Iceland today. Go back to about the year 1790, 25% of Iceland is the ancestor of 95% of Icelanders today. Most people in the past had no children. Really? Huh. Can you explain why? Do you know why? Well, well, because death, infertility... Maybe husband and wife don't really like each other. Starvation, uh, uh, you know, bad nutrition. There's all sorts of reasons why. And just dumb luck too. It's just most people, you might have a kid or two. You might have a couple of grandkids. You might not have any great grandkids at all. Yeah. Hmm. And so the family trees, again, they collapse into a very small group of people. And that group of people for the world did not live that long ago, a few thousand years ago. And it's as if nobody else was alive because none of their DNA came through. Okay, so I have a question then. Yeah. In a previous episode, y'all described how y'all put together with a a project, a gene project, y'all put together like the mitochondrial Eve or just reconstructed the genes of Eve, of Adam and Eve. Yeah. How can you do that if you don't have more DNA to work with for the previous 
ancestors that go back farther than a thousand years ago or back before the time of Christ? Because when you sequence enough people from around the world and you look at their little piece of DNA called the mitochondria and you realize that 99 point something percent of it, everyone has exactly the same letter there. Then you can look at what they have different and you realize, oh, well, if we change that A to a C, that explains the people in Mongolia. If we change this G to a T, that explains the people in Iceland. And you can reverse those changes. So if everyone in Iceland has a T at some place and no one else in the world has a T there, it's pretty clear that T was not the original. T was a mutation that happened in the Icelandic population. And you can back up the clock and recreate the ancestral nucleotide strand. And you can know, you know, you've ever seen like a phylogenetic tree? You see a bunch of branches yeah. and, and, and there's people at the end and then you know the, the branches connect and connect and connect all the way back to their ancestors. Well, you can know what the sequence was at any one of those connection points inside the tree. Okay. Therefore, you, huh. you know what mitochondrial leaves DNA was. You know what Y chromosome atoms DNA was. This might be going off into the land of sci-fi and we, we don't have a lot of time left in the show. So you tell me if we don't have enough time for this, but could you see people creating test two babies with essentially those genes? You mean, you, could they create a test two baby with some ancestral genetic signature? Yeah. Essentially a replication of Eve or something. Um, yeah, this is definitely possible. It's theoretically, we could do it today with a lot of work. We're limited now to making one or two changes per generation. So yeah, you could have a blue-eyed baby if you wanted to, even if you don't have blue eyes. Well, I'm not talking about making a, a cosmetic change, but I'm talking about like reassembling the supposed like creation, the recreation of Eve's genes and saying, let's, let's make a clone of that, whatever that is. Yeah, my, my point is we can do one letter at a time, but we can't do tens of thousands of letters at a time. Oh, okay. You would have to scramble the genome. We, we technologically is beyond us at the moment. I'm not saying we can't do it in the future, but at the moment you can't do it. And plus it's illegal. You're not allowed to uh, change what's called the germline. You're not allowed to make a change that will be inheritable from one generation to the next. Yeah, that's true. Because if you make a mistake, it's permanently in the human population and that would be unfair to later generations. It would be unfair to that child that was born too, but so you can't do that. Oh, that's good. That's illegal. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that someone in some third world country with some tens of thousands, maybe ten thousand dollars worth of laboratory equipment couldn't do it. Sure. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's off to the side. I want to talk one more aspect though of of um, ancestry.com, which is extremely frustrating. Or 23me.com. Very, very frustrating. Every once in a while, you get an email and it says, hey, you know, X number of people that you're related to have joined in just the last month. Connect with them. But it's not true. You're not related to them. <laughs> if you have a large chunk of DNA in common, okay, yeah, you're almost certainly you're related to them. But everybody has little teeny pieces of DNA in common with th thousands upon thousands of other people. Because as those little blocks are getting divided over time, they get into pretty small blocks. And then the probability of that block dividing in half again is, is almost nothing because it's too small. And those little teeny blocks of DNA just circulate across the population. And so what we are is we're a combination of little teeny ancestral recombination blocks 
that we share with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other people. And it only takes four or five generations for those blocks to get that size. Mm. And so, you know, I'll find someone who's got, you know, three or four blocks in common with me. Ooh, all right, let's talk to this person here. Well, you know what? That person may or may not be my third cousin. They could be much more distantly related than that. They just happen to at random inherit those blocks. Right. Or remember Elizabeth Warren, the, you know, the senator who was running for president. And she claimed for a long time that she was Native American. And there's a big blow up, you know, is she unfairly, you know, trying to steal the Native American heritage for advantage and all that. But I'm not going to go into the politics, but the genetics of it, when she had her DNA looked at, yeah, she's got, you know, several pieces of, of DNA that are very strongly associated with Native American ancestry. Fine. So do millions of others of Americans. She's not any more Native American than millions of Americans who don't even know they're Native American. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. She might be one of the rare people who... In her family tree, she knows her Native American ancestor. Okay, that might be true. Or it might be that she just kind of took a lucky guess. Anyway, this is this is one of my favorite subjects. Yeah, interesting. I, I've been studying my family history since I took my first genetics class in 1990. And now that we have DNA, this is like like um like kid in a candy store. It's huge. But I also have to realistically understand that in the paper trail, I'm not gonna go many generations back. But also in genetics, I'm not going to go that many generations back. We all merge into the population and our ancestry disappears. But turning it around, starting with someone like Adam and Eve or start, starting with Noah and his family, if they start having children and the population grows very quickly, what we're, what's going to happen is that the whole world is going to go back to that initial population of whatever size. And we won't be able to go any further because that's that's the ancestors. It's as if no one else was alive at the time. And biblically, there is no one else alive at the time. But scientifically, it's as if no one else is alive at the time. And you can't make the distinction between the evolutionary model and the creation model because they're both predicting the same thing. Hmm. Very interesting. So thank you so much for joining us on this quest, episode 16. If you want to dig deeper into those topics and Maybe if you've just started with the show here, you want to go back and listen to some of the other shows that also address genes and, and human ancestry, you need to find the links to the things that we have discussed in the show notes on the website. Hop over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 16. Or if you're right there, the show notes can also be found with this episode in your podcast app. And you should also check out Rob's science videos because he talks about this all the time. It's really good. At biblicalgenx.com, his Facebook page or YouTube channel where you can see the videos and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to catch up with me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. And until next time, thanks so much, Rob. That was great. You're supposed to say goodbye, Rob. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, okay, this time I just didn't. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. <laughs> goodbye, Joe. <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for listening to Equinox. Equinox.